You're listening to Reciprocal Presupposition, Radically Relational Radio with Joshua Nwazu, broadcasting through the facilities of Trent Radio, 92.7 FM, CFFF, Peterborough, Ontario, Canada. We are in a special episode, a broadcast of a radio thesis, Hybrid War on the Radio, How Does War Become Hybrid, part one of a multi-part series. You're picking up now as we explain the concept of hybrid war, what it has to do with our contemporary political situation, and we're breaking it down. We just talked about the convergence of the means of war, how all different kinds of non-state, insurgent, terrorists, lone wolf, all these kinds of groups, non-state actors, have access to increasingly impactful technologies and techniques in contemporary warfare really throwing a loop, throwing a wrench, rather, in the plans of state militaries. Now we're going to talk a bit about another aspect of what is called hybrid warfare theory, and that is the proliferation of actors. So the United States military, trailed at great distance by Russia, China, and the European countries, now possesses the most sophisticated and powerful military hardware ever developed. And using this material advantage, it exerts unrivaled influence across, basically, the entire world. So war is now by definition asymmetric because there exists no realistic challenger to U.S. military dominance, at least using conventional weapons. With its network of over 700 military installations globally, and that's just the ones we know about, and spending annually of over $640 billion, as much as the next seven countries combined, the United States military position is superior to that of any other nation. Playing the military game at anything near this level is just prohibitively expensive. And the states that could afford to step onto the field at all can't really hope to compete with the United States. Most have stopped even trying. The United States continually begs and prods the European countries, members of its alliance, NATO, to up their military spending, saying, why do you guys keep cutting your funding for the defense budget? Hmm, different opinions. And accordingly... Wars between conventional militaries basically become obsolete. Meta-studies and reviews of recent wars have shown that since the 1970s, the incidence of state versus state wars has declined dramatically. Of major significance to this decline has been the collapse of the USSR. So with no international antagonism between superpowers, there have been fewer proxy wars and less externally supported civil wars. In the post-1991 era of American unipolarity, single superpower, asymmetric, insurgent, and guerrilla wars have become basically the only channel through which violent grievances can be expressed. Nobody's going to up and challenge the United States to a real shooting war. But a bunch of guys with some cell phones and some explosives, they might. The official national defense strategy of the United States acknowledges that America's this is a quote America's military predominance influences the behavior of its enemies and that our preeminence forces adversaries away from traditional forms of warfare end quote in other words the US military dominance produces the kinds of asymmetric and hybrid adversaries that it finds so recalcitrant, so difficult to subdue throughout recent years. The U.S. military's FM-324 counterinsurgency manual notes, the recent success of U.S. military forces in major combat operations undoubtedly will lead to many future opponents to pursue asymmetric approaches, end quote. So, if the United States continues to pursue a foreign policy oriented towards global military hegemony or total domination, 
its adversaries will continue to adapt by developing asymmetric and hybrid tactics of precisely the sort that the hegemon finds so hard to defeat. In this sense, the apparent successes of the U.S. military, well, we toppled Saddam Hussein's regime, oh, we got Taliban kicked into the nether regions of Pakistan, oh, we blew up uh, Gaddafi's regime in Libya, and so on. These apparent successes are inexorably wrapped up with its most intractable challenges. They create their enemies. Beginning with the rise of the neoliberal Washington consensus, this turn of the 1970s, 1980s, the end of or the, the agreement that we're going to start to dismantle the welfare state, and accelerating after the end of the Cold War, the political and the economic frameworks of the international system of states has been compromised by the delegitimizing and disempowering effects of a variety of encroachments on its traditional framework, from the erosion of sovereignty by globalizing financial institutions to the rise of counter-narratives to Western humanism and democracy, such as a, a re-emergent politicized radical Islamism. And the role of the state, which is shifting and in many places around the world receding in an irregular pattern, receding from places that are formerly tightly in its grasp, even public services that seemed integral to the state, such as security, are becoming commodified and, in some areas, privatized. We've seen this extensively. There's ample documentation about private military contractors, the outsourcing of security, and these groups running rampant out of the control of democratic oversight. Austrian military theorist Josef Schrothel, I don't know how to pronounce that, believes that, quote, the purchasing power of states determines whether those states can afford security. Because of the ascendant global policies of privatization, deregulation, and trade liberalization, it erodes states' ability to levy taxes to buy security, and poverty translates into insecurity. And state sovereignty, or their monopoly on the legitimate use of force, is eroded. It follows, then, that as states weaken, they're more likely to be challenged by insurgent forces. End quote. So we see a whole brew of factors coming together in this early 21st century international relations security environment. Think about Mexico, the narco-terrorists, the cartels, running huge swaths of the country, or at least complicit in governance, making it difficult or impossible for the government to do its business unless the government gets involved in their business. Brazil, we talked about mass killings in the favelas, whole areas the police and military don't venture into unless they come in with a shooting mindset. Iraq, which is now effectively carved into ethnic statelets. And this has led, in a number of places, to deep political instability, which is attended by the appearance of power vacuums, which are then subsequently filled by these groups that range from, yeah, multinational corporations too, and these big, big uh, conglomerates of contractors, and also tribes of a few dozen members. The point is, these groups operate at trans, sub, or post-state levels. They fulfill roles that have been vacated by the state, including providing security, which is one of the key ideas behind sovereignty, as we said. And one can find many more examples throughout the world. I already mentioned Mexico, Brazil, other places in Latin America. In El Salvador, there's big regions in which you have to pay basically extortion taxes to operate businesses, pass through highways to local gangs. And semi-institutionalized collusion with organized crime in southern Europe. We've got the deeply embedded corruption of uh, certain areas of southern Italy with organized crime. Ethnic confessional militias throughout most of the Middle East and the very many rebel groups that operate in Central and Western Africa. So, though modern states now rarely fight amongst themselves, a greater proportion of states are chronically weak and unstable, illegitimate in the eyes of significant numbers of their inhabitants or their neighbors, and they're so 
prone to intrastate conflict, conflict that happens inside the borders of states, as we see very clearly now around Iraq, Syria, and so on. The fragmentation of the geopolitical map has invigorated these numerous local and regional grievances, which often escalate to some level of violent conflict. And these conflicts are expressed in the form of, quote, small wars that are fought by both state and non-state formations. Very often, the difference between them is not appreciable. It's instructive to note that strategists within the United States military and its think tank auxiliaries have spent years publication after publication there's a there's a there's a journal titled the small wars journal they've spent so much intellectual energy in the discussion and the nature of these unique challenges of small wars they're not cute wars they're just not these giant conflagrations that we thought of in world war 2 and so on it's almost become fetishized how do we do counterinsurgency these are questions for a very small subset of people. The technological and sociopolitical changes that make conventional war cost prohibitive and that makes guerrilla insurgency more necessary and affordable than ever also assure that within any given conflict, there's a multiplicity of violent actors. These include, like I said earlier, contractors, tribal affiliates, ethnic games, crim gangs, criminal enterprises popular and confessional militias, terrorist cells, political parties, often intertwined with the aforementioned violent organizations. Lebanon, an excellent example of this. Iraq as well. Neighborhood watch groups, militias, people in Mexico just trying to organize themselves as vigilantes to protect themselves against the ruthless killing of the narco cartels or the extrajudicial killings of the state security forces. So while all these groups operate... Uh, Excuse me. While all these groups operate under the auspices of the authority of nation states, none of these groups are actually beholden to these sovereign powers. So as a result, contemporary wars witness a huge, complex cross-layering of treachery and opportunism, vengeance and schism amongst this intricate tangle of armed groups that participate in all these exchanges of hostilities. We've already listed a number of examples. Non-state groups have steadily increased their political and military influence since the latter half of the 20th century. In all of the most recent large-scale violent conflicts in Iraq, Syria, uh, Africa, and the Ukraine, non-state armed forces vastly outnumber contemporary or sorry conventional militaries. Splinter groups and factions proliferate in weekly schisms that ebb and flow with the rising and falling of global economic and political tides. An example, the, the Syrian civil war is just a mess. There's over 39, probably much more than this, but at least 39 major belligerent groups. They, they fracture and hybridize with each other. So who knows exactly how many there are. And uh, in the 2003 to 2011 war in Iraq, there were at least over 30 active insurgent groups listed by the United States military. You're listening to Reciprocal Presupposition, on Trent Radio, uh, broadcasting through the facilities of CFFF 92.7 FM, Peterborough, Ontario, Canada, talking about hybrid war. Attempting to differentiate and categorize these different kinds of belligerents in contemporary conflict, according to these labels, regular or irregular, is all but impossible. According to the theorist of hybrid war, Frank Hoffman, we may be no longer able to characterize states as traditional forces and non-state actors as irregular. This is because, quote, future challenges present a more complex array of alternative structures and strategies. The new and complex adversaries will not remain static or subject to predictive analysis, but will continuously evolve and exploit the diffusion of innovative tactics, techniques, and procedures that offer the greatest return on investment, end quote. So they, they, uh, they defy analysis. And to illustrate the difficulty of successfully analyzing this, quote, enemy, if it can be clearly understood in such a discrete way, the United States has spent vast sums of money and intellectual energy trying to predict and model the likely outcomes of today's complex battle spaces. But even 
this technologically advanced and logistically sophisticated military machine has been pretty much unable to effectively predict and preclude the emergence of threats. We don't know what threats they have been able to protect against, but they haven't been able to protect against some of the big ones. Why? So it's also been unable, the U.S. military, to model strategically complex situations, accurately enough, at least, to provide winning prognosis for some of the most important geopolitical engagements. I'm talking about Iraq, Afghanistan, these government-shaping, world-shaping engagements that multi, multi, multi billions of dollars have been spent on. There's a definite vested interest in seeing these things go their way. But in Afghanistan, for just one example, the Taliban and other insurgent groups are now still poised to exert increasingly dominant influence over the country yet again, and this is 2016. This must just exasperate these dedicated analysts and strategists that have spent these last 14 years and longer trying to prevent just these outcomes. This is exactly what they didn't want to happen. Iraq, that has borne the full brunt of American military power and securing the peace of post-Saddam Iraq being a primary objective for not just the American military, but also the American intelligence, economic, diplomatic machines. You know, but nevertheless, after a brief calm through 2011 and 2013, and there were still suicide bombings, still huge marches in the streets, the Iraq Civil War has been reignited, as you know, and it's merged with the Syrian catastrophe, vaporizing American plans for a stable and democratic Iraq. No one really can say how it's going to end. Right now, it's not looking like it's going very well. One of the largest suicide attacks in the whole history of this god-awful war. Just last week, Baghdad, 250 people killed, claimed by ISIS. In 2014 and 2015, a renewed coalition bombing campaign against ISIS had, after many months of bombing, hit many thousands, at the time of writing 3,200, now it's vastly more than that, enemy targets, which had apparently dislodged Islamic State or ISIS from only 1% of the territory. That was after months. Now they've been set back further, but they're still holding on to the core of their territory across the border of Syria and Iraq. They're still holding to Mosul, still holding to Raqqa. It's been painfully clear that the logistical, economic, and technological military superiority all these kinds of superiority, they do not translate directly into victory. Wow. Some commentators and policymakers devoutly believe, and this reminds me of one of our earlier episodes on the singularity, check it out on our SoundCloud page, that these problems, excuse me, that these problems will be unraveled through the application of yet more high technology. The so-called revolution of military affairs in the 1980s and 90s that accompanied the use of things like the early form of the internet, different kinds of missile technologies, network belief in the power of networks, all this was driven by a kind of core technophilic belief that new technologies would unravel the mysteries of modern war and all but ensure American victory through superior connectivity superior precision and concentration of firepower. It was almost a religion through the 1990s amongst American strategists. And then 2001 happened. Yet there are others, among them strategy scholar Martin Van Creveld or Stephen Biddle, who've argued that the complexity and sophistication of military systems can actually reduce their operational capability. Hmm. And the technophilic view, so prevalent among high-level Pentagon officials, is challenged by the idea that technology is not a panacea for complex problems. 21st century military problems defy the conveniently simple explanations and predictions that can supposedly be solved by big data or by super-advanced targeting systems. Some other thinkers, including Thomas X. Hams, Frank Hoffman, and Emil Simpson, 
have begun to accept the premise of war's intractable complexity, especially in the cultural sphere. They all argue, in some way, for a strategic doctrine that stresses, rather than technology, fluidity and adaptivity. This type of thinking, though, is still very much a minority view. And while analysis lumbers along, catching up to developments on the ground and in cyberspace, the classical model of bilateral conflict between states, it's obsolete. The strategic metaphor of chess, for example, is no longer adequate when there are dozens, if not hundreds of players jockeying for space on the board in every game, and there are multiple games overlapping, and the games all have different rules. Even the world's most advanced military data processing systems seem unable to effectively make use of almost unlimited information in order to win even the smallest games. And victory is nowhere secured. And this has led the proponents of hybrid warfare theory to question the very framework of victory and defeat and the very notions of wartime and peacetime. We're going to take another break. Come get out of the way, boys. Quick get out of the way. You'd better watch what you say, boys. Better watch what you say. We've rammed in your harbor and tied to your port And our pistols are hungry and our tempers are short So bring your daughters around to the fore Cause we're the cops of the world, boys We're the cops of the world We pick and choose as we please, boys Pick and choose as we please You'd best get down on your knees, boys Best get down on your knees We're hairy and horny and ready to shack And we don't care if you're yellow or black Just take off your clothes and lay down on your back Cause we're the cops of the world, boys We're the cops of the world Our boots are needing a shine, boys Boots are needing a shine But our Coca-Cola is fine, boys Coca-Cola is fine We've got to protect all our citizens fair so we'll send a battalion for everyone there And maybe we'll leave in a couple of years Cause we're the cops of the world, boy We're the cops of the world And dump the reds in a pile, boy Dump the reds in a pile You'd better wipe off that smile, boys Better wipe off that smile We'll spit through the streets of the cities we wreck And we'll find you a leader that you can elect Those treaties we signed were a pain in the neck Cause we're the cops of the world, boys we're the cops of the world And clean the Johns with a rag, boy Clean the Johns with a rag If you like, you can use your flag, boys If you like, you can use your flag We've got too much money, we're looking for toys And guns will be guns and boys will be boys, but we'll gladly pay for all we destroy. Cause we're the cops of the world, boys. We're the cops of the world. Please stay off of the grass, boys. 
please stay off of the ground. Here's a kick in the ass, boys. Here's a kick in the ass. We'll smash down your doors. We don't bother to knock. We've done it before, so why all the shock? We're the biggest and the toughest kids on the block. And we're the cops of the world, boys. We're the cops of the world. And when we butchered your sons, boys, when we butchered your sons, have a stick of our gum, boys, have a stick of our bubble gum. We own half the world, oh say can you see, and the name for our profits is democracy. So like it or not, you will have to be free, cause we're the cops of the world, boys, we're the cops of the world. Reciprocal presupposition, radically relational radio. This is Joshua Noaze coming into the third and final portion of tonight's show. Going extra long, going for the gold. It's called The Fusion of Modes of War, and it's part of part one How Does War Become Hybrid? of our multi part series Hybrid War on the Radio, Agency and Strategy in Contemporary War. An oral radio thesis. So what is the fusion of modes? One of the central claims of Frank Hoffman's hybrid war thesis is that war and peace have merged into an indistinct zone or unitary phase. Since the hybrid wars of now and of the future will, quote, encompass both regular and irregular combat, in the broadest possible sense, there may not be any, quote, distinct threats or wars or even battles, but only a multimodal form of war, end quote. A war that encompasses peace. A war that encompasses peace. The military has expanded into its peacetime role, not just in the capacities of deterrence or readiness, but in the practice of active engagement and pursuit of the aims of war through and during peace. The boundary between peace and war has been eliminated. And the United States Navy's 1988 prediction that, quote, there won't be any non-combat areas in the world, end quote, has come true. Shifts in the discourse of war and about what constitutes the appropriate realm for military conduct, are what led Hoffman, for example, to believe that war is now, quote, something much vaguer, more interdisciplinary, more to do with psychology and identity than with actual military forces, end quote. The vague interdisciplinary procedure, formerly known as war, has now turned the war, sorry, the entire world, has now turned the entire world into a potential combat zone. The world is now seen as a field of imminently possible violence with no clear boundaries or distinctions which can erupt at any place at any time into conflagrations of greater intensity, like eastern Ukraine, Libya, Mexico, Iraq, Syria, and so on. This peace war is referred to in Hoffman's shorthand as hybrid war, although he makes it clear that there is now no clear-cut distinction between soldiers and civilians, between organized violence, terror, crime, and war. There's no separation between the modes of low-intensity war and violence-riddled peace. This is not so much a physical or an ontological, a change in the nature of being, not so much a physical change in the nature of war and peace, although there are real shifts in that area materially, but it's more a discursive shift. Nothing fundamental changed between World War I and now, for example, in terms of how bullets fly through space, or how bodies and other objects are maimed and destroyed by them, but the way that war is conceptualized has shifted considerably. Positivist, 
or realist assumptions, which talk about a mechanistic universe that can be understood and manipulated through scientific access to direct knowledge about the world. These are the foundational premises of much of international relations. They've been called into question, not just in international relations, but across many realms of inquiry. Some of Reciprocal Presuppositions' earlier shows, which are available on our SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com forward slash reciprocal presupposition, explored these ideas. This is the central thrust of the so-called postmodernist turn. This has led to increased philosophical and scientific discussion about something like the thesis that, as a, as a, as a pretty astute international relations scholar, James Derdarian puts it, quote, there is no reality independent of perception and observation. End quote. I didn't choose that because he's the first or the first guy to say it or the guy who said it best, but because he was one of the original guys in the field of international relations to realize this, the importance of perception. That the growing awareness of the discursive and the perceptual production of reality naturally has led to an increased incentive to shape and modulate the way that reality is perceived and observed in order to better control it. The greater the understanding of the importance of controlling worldviews in order to control the world itself, the greater the theoretical and metaphysical effort that is expended to assert, through violence if necessary, one's own worldview as a universal reality. Think democracy promotion. This shift from physical to psychological centers of gravity is what James Derdarian calls quantum war. Different label, similar concept. He says, quote, War, peace, and the interactions between them, from kinetic to stability to military operations other than war, which is many of them now, stand in sharp contrast to the closed systems and linear models meant to explain them. They operate in a contingent world that seems to function in a very different way from the predictable, explainable, and quantifiable methods of traditional social science, in which every effect can be traced back to a single cause. This new world is full of non-linear and emergent effects, random and unexpected events, and multivariant and multiversal causes. End quote. It's a beautiful quote. Derdarian's post-classical approach, what you could call that, with its emphasis on nonlinearity, chaos, and multivariance, aptly describes contemporary conditions of conflict. And you could say, though, it just as well describes earlier modes of fighting. The thing is, while the nature of warfighting might not have intrinsically shifted, our understanding of it has. So, the relative importance of a post-classical understanding of the emergent complexity of war has grown. The reflexive and discursive production of the distinction between war and peace have been blown open. And so the way we think war, and therefore do war, must be adjusted. So how does this conceptual blurring of war and peace affect what we formerly thought of as war and peace on the ground, so to speak? One effect is the routinization and perpetuation of anti-terror campaigns. We all know this. They've increased in length to the point where they're now recognized to be, perhaps, never-ending. Quote, Terrorist groups today last five to ten times longer than their Cold War predecessors and show a degree of resiliency and a capacity for survival that did not previously exist. End quote. This was said by Bruce Hoffman not Frank Hoffman, speaking at the 2009 Unrestricted Warfare Symposium at Johns Hopkins University. Fighting terrorism is, quote, becoming more difficult, more complex, and more time-consuming to counter than ever before, end quote. The longer a terrorist group exists, the longer the fight against it must drag on, as the now more than 20-year U.S. fight against various iterations of Al-Qaeda demonstrates, and now the war against ISIS is dragging into its second, almost third year, depending on how you calculate who exactly ISIS is. In a world where conventional military 
firepower inevitably ends up producing a parade of asymmetric opponents, it's no longer surprising that terrorist groups are more and more persistent. Terrorists are all too often produced by the wars waged against them. And since the global war on terror was declared, it's now since been undeclared, but it hasn't been stopped being waged, this has only become more true, as evidenced by the resilience of Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and other insurgent groups throughout Africa and the Middle East. While it has been occasionally and rarely acknowledged by Western policymakers, the course of action has changed very little. While the official line is that the war against groups like the Islamic State and the Taliban are still being prosecuted with victory as the goal, inside the U.S. military, theorists and strategists are hunkering down for what they call the long war. And by long, they mean long Another effect of the blurring of war and peace is the difficulty military decision-makers have in determining the appropriate course of action when faced with belligerent activity. A significant problem for NATO has been trying to discern or decide what activities should be understood as sufficiently antagonistic or warlike so as to call in effect the Alliance's Collective Defense Provision, Article 5. The problem with the current standoff with Russia over its interests in Ukraine and Eastern Europe, including NATO member states in the Baltic region, is that, quote, most of what Russia might attempt to do will be below the radar of traditional collective defense, end quote. It's up to NATO to decide whether an Article 5 attack has taken place. And this requires recognizing what is going on and who is behind it. It was widely acknowledged, for example, that the arrival of the little green men in Crimea in 2014 was a veiled expression, and a poorly veiled expression, of Russian military aggression. But it's not clear what similar action, or some even more confusing sub-physical aggression in the realm of cyber and information warfare, what it might mean if it was directed at a NATO member state. President Grybauskate, again, I don't know if that's the pronunciation, of Lithuania, claims that Russia is already waging a kind of war against her country, a NATO state. But NATO has not decided that Russia's actions constitute a defensible aggression. Isn't this proof, not only of the blurring of the modes of war and peace, but also of its discursive character? This is happening in the realm of concepts ideas, language. The hybrid warfare approach, which considers all manner of activity fair game in the conduct of war, both responds to existing trends in contemporary battle spaces and advocates for the institutional adoption by military strategists of this multimodal peace war style model. As there aren't necessarily any distinct threats or wars or battles, militaries should concern themselves deeply in areas like civilian politics, entertainment, media, law, and even philosophy that they traditionally were precluded or had avoided participating in. This means that militaries are positioning themselves in postures not only of perpetual readiness, as in the idea of deterrence, but also in gestures of perpetual and ongoing activity. Wars are no longer declared. We know this, but they also no longer end. Theorist Brian Masumi indicates this is why contemporary militaries are so preoccupied with the practice of what they call preemptive warfare. This is what we saw already in 2003, but it, the doctrine that underlies the invasion of Iraq in that year continues throughout and undergirds so much of contemporary American foreign relations. As Masumi says, in the condition of non-battle, which is characteristic of the peace war, when you have nothing to act on tangi tangibly, there's still one thing you can do. Act on the condition. To act on the condition of emergence of possible outcomes in order to structure actual outcomes is the rationale of preemptive war. War that is blurred with peace, which is not localized in the space of actual emergence, but instead is dispersed across an, a realm of potential emergence, imminent everywhere. Strategist and war scholar Michael Howard 
holds that, quote, in today's confrontations, warfighting and peacekeeping cannot be separated. They melt into one another, and the conduct of each determines the success of the other, end quote. There is literally no difference between warfighting and peacekeeping. Fighting the war is keeping the peace, and keeping the peace is fighting the war. This is Howard's quasi-Orwellian prognosis, but it's really quite instructive. The conduct of warfighting determines the success of peacekeeping. And this is not because a well-fought war results in a good peace. It's not because a well-fought war results in a good peace. It's because the state of war is that which defines and structures peace as the temporary absence of war, at least formerly. Howard's implication is that peacekeeping is a natural extension of warfighting and vice versa. The realm of military strategy now grows. And this means that keeping or the tending to of peace is actually another operation of war. The famous 19th century military thinker Clausewitz, Carl von Clausewitz's dictum, which is cited by just about every writer on strategy, is that war is the continuation of politics by other means. In our present reality, however, war and peace are arbitrary concepts that have become basically undifferentiated. Violence can and will erupt without declaration and without recourse to any kind of categorization within a spectrum of war or peace. Frank Hoffman's hybrid war theory is an attempt to prepare U.S. and other Western militaries for operations within this new paradigm. As we've seen, hybrid war is not simply the equivalent of irregular or asymmetric war. It's a strategic framework that can be employed by states and a description of a type of war that exists in the 21st century between and involving states and, and non-state actors. According to Hoffman, quote, hybrid wars can be conducted by both states and a variety of non-state actors. These multimodal activities are generally operationally and tactically directed and coordinated within the main battle space to achieve synergistic effects in the physical and psychological dimensions of a conflict. The effects can be gained at all levels of war. Future or hybrid war does not portend a suite of distinct challengers with alternative or different methods, but instead their convergence into hybrid wars that blend the lethality of state conflict with the fanatical and protracted fervor of a regular warfare. The term hybrid thus captures both the organizations and their means. End quote. And this is important. This is kind of the crux here and the transition between this segment and the next. It's important to note, hybrid war should not be understood as a technique utilized by states like Russia or non-state actors like ISIS. Instead, it's a concept that destabilizes the very meaning of the idea of actors within military strategy. It, it pokes holes in the concept of a discrete and unitary entity that can agentially act on the world, do strategy. We'll come to this more later. In a recent overview of hybrid war theory, Joseph Schroffel of the Austrian Ministry of Defense and Stuart Kaufman of the University of Delaware, in a joint paper, warn against interpretive approaches that quote, unwisely try to simplify the concept of hybridity, which reduce hybrid war merely to conflicts that combine regular and irregular forces, a definition hardly distinguishable from older conceptions of asymmetric war, end quote. Bear with me here. For these guys, Schroffel and Kaufman, what distinguishes hybrid war from the earlier idea of asymmetric war, guerrilla war, whatever, not only is it a combination of asymmetric military means, but the forces driving the, quote, actors do not converge around a single political and ideological struggle. Instead, the means, the actors, the forces that animate them all proliferate in an impenetrable tangle. Hybrid war theory's complication of military strategy and organizational agency is thus the key distinction that supports its position as a novel an important understanding of the nature of war in the 21st century. The most crucial concept, though, is never quite fully articulated by Frank Hoffman and other hybrid warfare theorists. But it is implicit when you think about the convergence of means of war, 
the proliferation of different actors and the fusion of the modes of war and peace. And it's that neither the state nor the insurgents constitute coherent actors, but they're rather loosely associated groups of actors which, are, which pursue partially overlapping goals. A critical engagement with this idea, the idea of coherent actors, the idea of agency, that is, the power to cause action to occur, to affect the world, which is the foundational concept behind the idea of strategy, is a critical gesture that's going to be used in the rest of this radio thesis to translate the military language of hybrid war into a more philosophical language of ecological or trans-subjective agency. This is going to come in the coming parts of this multi-part series on hybrid war on the radio. And it's, we're going to get into the vividly relevant, at least to the understanding of contemporary military phenomena, theorizations of philosopher Gilles Deleuze and Felix Guattari and their more recent interpreter, Brian Masumi. Through this kind of translation, this translation from military language to philosophical language, this broadcast thesis will take the most sharpest and most critically astute elements of the idea of hybrid war, and it will use them to perform a deeper critique, a critique not only of the conduct of contemporary warfare, but also of strategic and political agency as such. That's it for part one of Hybrid War on the Radio. I'm your host, Joshua Nawaza, and you've been listening to Reciprocal Presupposition, Radically Relational Radio, broadcast through the facilities of Trent Radio 92.7 FM, CFFF, Peterborough, Ontario, Canada. As always, feel free to check out our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash reciprocal presupposition. Check out our SoundCloud page where you can hear this and other episodes, soundcloud.com forward slash reciprocal presupposition. Look forward next week. We're going to skip, I think, this uh, second part of this series, and we're going to put together, finally, I think, our show on alternatives to the concept of mental health, and we're going to approach the concept of neurodiversity. The following week, I think we have our, one of our big guests that I was talking about earlier in the show. I'm not yet going to reveal who that is. Uh, and then we'll come back for a little while to the hybrid war talk. And then after that, we're going to go back to guests. So we have a big summer lined up still for you on reciprocal presupposition. We're going to go out with another song. Just let me get this queued up here. I should list or attribute the songs that we've heard earlier in the show. First, we heard Kanon, What's Hardcore? Right after that, we heard the amazing and sadly defunct Canadian hip-hop group Warsaw Pack with their song Year of the Car Crash. Second break, we heard Phil Oakes, great anti-war topical folk singer. Cops of the World was the first song. Second song was Men Behind the Guns. Now we're going to hear, as we go out, Wood Hands, Canadian band, Under Attack. This is Josh Nwaza signing off for Reciprocal Presupposition, Radically Relational Radio. Have a good night, everybody.